This is an ABC podcast. Right now, in a lab in Boston, Massachusetts, a mouse in a cage is going through some pretty challenging times. Scientists tweaked its genetic information and its ageing process accelerated. It got little grey hairs and frail bones. Then they tweaked it again and the ageing process reversed. Some in the field of longevity research are now saying we could live to 150 or beyond. I'm not sure I'm up for that, frankly. But today on Life Matters, we'll look at how much ageing-related decline is under our control. I'm Hilary Harper, and we're coming to you from NAM, Melbourne. Would you want to live to 150 or beyond? Some researchers say it will be a possibility soon. Slowing down the ageing process sounds like science fiction, but scientists are managing it, in mice at least. And whatever our potential future lifespans, many in this field of research agree there are many things you can do right now to help you stick around on this earth a bit longer. I'd love to hear what you are doing right now to try and live a longer and healthier life. What are the things that you've included in your daily or weekly or yearly schedule and plan to try and squeeze a few more years out of our allotted span? Dr Lindsay Wu is a Senior Research Fellow at the Laboratory for Ageing Research at the University of New South Wales. He knows all about these mice that age backwards. Dr Wu, welcome. Morning. Now you. It's really good to have you here with us. You've worked with Professor David Sinclair, who's famous for his research on reversing the age of mice. Tell us what that experiment did. Yeah, so that experiment wasn't actually uh, changing the DNA as such. So it was changing how the DNA was turned on and off. Essentially, this was a really clever uh, genetic model where the mice, uh, you could essentially turn on DNA damage at will. Now, that DNA damage didn't lead to permanent mutations. That wasn't the idea of the experiment. The idea was that the act of repairing that DNA could change how other genes were turned on and off. And it turns out that by repairing that DNA, you're suddenly uh, uh, stopping these other genes that should be turned off from being uh, turned off. So that means that genes which shouldn't be turned on in a particular cell type are turned on. You know, we've got 30,000 genes in our genome but you only need a small number of those to make a particular cell type. And when you start turning on genes that shouldn't be turned on, for example, in a brain cell, you can end up with disease. So that's the idea of the experiment. But that's interesting, isn't it? Because we've always thought of ageing as an inevitable and natural process. Does this experiment suggest that it's something you can prevent? Yeah, when it comes to preventing it, you know, you talked earlier about the idea of reversing that in this mouse model. The way it was reversed was introducing these factors that reverse uh, DNA ageing essentially as uh, egg cells or sperm cells are produced. So, of course, we have this DNA in adults that can lead to a healthy baby. Now, this classic experiment in the 1950s by a British fellow by the name of John Curden uh, was trying to address this idea that DNA damage uh, as we grow, grew older could be reversed. So what he did was he took a frog, which was old, and you know at the time we were presumed that DNA underwent mechanical and chemical damage and it just couldn't be fixed. And he took that DNA and put it back inside an egg cell. And if you, that DNA was damaged, you would expect that the frog that grew up would be sick and unhealthy, but it was actually perfectly fine. And you could actually repeat this experiment for 100 generations. And what it tells us is that DNA somehow can be reprogrammed back into a youthful state. You know, it took 50 years until a Japanese fellow by the name of Shinya Yamanaka figured out exactly what it was. And it was these magical factors that are floating around inside egg cells that can reverse our DNA back to its uh, youthful state. So it's not necessarily damage accumulating to cells, but information lost from cells. 
Yeah, that's the idea, how DNA is turned on and off. Exactly. Interesting. We're speaking with Dr. Lindsay Wu, who has worked with a scientist called Professor David Sinclair in this field of longevity research. Uh, Lindsay's at the Laboratory for Ageing Research at the University of New South Wales. Now, David Sinclair believes that if, if ageing is miscues in the epigenetic instructions, the kind of pattern for our, our genetic information, that we have backups of that information and, and that our system could simply be rebooted. Is, is that possible? So that's the intention for certain cell types, I think, that are where it's possible to turn that into a medicine. The idea would be that certain cell types can't grow back in adults. For example, we can't grow new certain types of neurons. So if you damage the spinal cord or you damage the optic nerve, the nerve that goes from the eye to the brain, that can't be fixed. Now, you know, what he showed in a mouse was that if you reprogram the DNA in those nerve cells following an injury, they can actually grow back. Now, people shouldn't take this to think that we can reprogram all cells in our body and just essentially revert our, our age like a Benjamin Button style. Um, that's because if you reverse DNA aging too much, you end up with this embryonic stem cell state. So, you know, we just turn into this mass of undifferentiated cells. So we don't want to do that. You know, when these factors were first discovered, the first experiment people tried to do was turn them on in an adult. And what you ended up with are what are called teratomas. See, these are not quite cancers, but these are masses of uh, tissue growth where the cells have differentiated into the wrong cell type. So this is not something that you want to do throughout the entire body, but it is something that could be applied to one or two cell types. Well, give us some examples of where it could potentially be useful for helping with age-related issues. So one of the first applications they're looking at is in restoring the optic nerve that I mentioned earlier. So this optic nerve can be damaged by you know, mechanical injury, uh, as well as um, certain ophthalmic conditions, for example, um, glaucoma uh, and other uh, conditions that lead to a high amount of pressure in the back of the eye that actually physically crushes that nerve. So the idea there is to regrow that optic nerve. Well, that sounds pretty useful. I mean, there's a lot of people who could surely benefit from that. How far away are we from seeing that applied in a, a practical sense, Lindsay Wu? Yeah, it's undergoing uh, development right now. So it's, you know, it, to be clear, it's, it's, a, it's a risky strategy in that, you know, there's a lot that has to happen. You have to deliver these four factors that can rewind our DNA back to this embryonic state. Um, these four factors are not small. They're not small drugs that we can just deliver to the back of the eye. We have to use genetically engineered viruses to get back there. And there's a lot that has to happen. And most importantly, those factors have to be turned on just the right amount, enough to have an effect, but not so much that you end up with these teratomas. Interesting. I should ask too, I mean, we, we've seen that rejuvenating cells in mice can happen. Do we know if it's possible in humans? Look, we won't know until that clinical trial happens. And, you know, I know that people are working uh, working hard towards that. Mm. And if you're interested in chasing up this research we've been discussing about the, the Benjamin Buttoning mice, it was published in Cell magazine earlier this year. Lindsay, a, a lot of our listeners might think that helping us to live longer is the general aim of traditional medicine. Does this kind of research into longevity approach disease differently to traditional medicine? I guess the key difference is that you know, the way we treat uh, older patients at the moment is one disease at a time. You know, so there are um, medications for cardiovascular disease or for neurocognitive decline or for cancer and so on. The idea here is that as we grow older, there is a systemic increased risk in every disease state. And so the idea is that if we could treat the underlying biology of aging, treat that program, we could potentially treat all of these diseases at the same time. 
Now, that seems like a far-off dream. I think it could have, if we're successful, have enormous public health implications. For example, an infectious disease or for a cancer or neurocognitive disease. But that's what we're working towards. Beth in Alstonville says, I'm about to turn 79. I play pickleball several times a week. Never been fitter. I do something physical, mental, social and creative every day. And another, this morning, spin bike, rower, weights, now walk, coffee, green tea, supplements, matcha powder, a fasted walk, lunch, Mediterranean style, and an afternoon walk, weights, dinner, Mediterranean style, and calming de-stress. Thinking helps by listening to RN. That's from Angela in Lilydale. That is a packed schedule, Angela. We might have a talk as this discussion continues about the different kinds of dietary and exercise-related changes that you might need to make and how much time you might need to spend on them with our second guest in a short while. We're speaking with Dr. Lindsay Wu, who's been... Uh, working in the field of longevity research. He works at the Laboratory for Ageing Research at the University of New South Wales. Understand too, Lindsay, that there are some uh, drug treatments being investigated right now that might help us treat ageing and chronic disease more holistically. Could you tell us about rapamycin and metformin? Yeah, so, you know, there are a lot of medications that are being developed in the lab that, you know, can extend lifespan in animals. And the difficulty there is they're not ready for clinical trials or they're not currently clinically used. But there are, however, two drugs that you mentioned, metformin and rapamycin, which potentially uh, could be used to treat aging and, more importantly, are already available in the clinic. Now, metformin is an anti-diabetic drug. It's been around for a very long time, more than half a century. It's very mild. It's prescribed widely. And we know from um, uh, epidemiological studies that diabetics who are on metformin tend to have lower incidences of cancer, neurocognitive decline, and in the lab, metformin can extend lifespan. And so, you know, the big question is if we prospectively trial metformin, whether it can uh, treat these diseases, even in healthy people, people who are non-diabetic. Now, the other one that you mentioned is rapamycin. So rapamycin is not as mild. It's used in transplant recipients actually to suppress their immune system. But we see that as a very powerful or potent intervention for extending lifespan and delaying age-related diseases. In the lab, treatment with rapamycin, even for a brief period of time or even when delivered late in life, can drastically extend lifespan and treat age-related diseases. And I should say, you know, don't try this at home, kids. As you heard from Dr. Lindsay Wu, this is something that's being looked at in a laboratory because it is not a mild drug. Uh, very keen to hear your thoughts on this whole discussion about living longer and the the work being put in to help us treat uh, our disease states and our health states and our ageing more holistically. And also be interested to hear what you're doing on a day-to-day level to try and stave off the inevitable. We know it's inevitable. Send us a text 0418 Lindsay, where does this leave those old chestnuts diet and exercise? What do we know about how much effect they can have compared to, you know, drugs or genetic interventions? Look, I've devoted my entire professional career to developing drugs that will hopefully treat ageing, but nothing I, I could dream of would be as powerful as diet and exercise. These are by far and away the most potent interventions. So you read out a couple of texts earlier from these older people who sound like they have a fantastic lifestyle and I aspire to be able to do that when I'm older. You know, exercise is by far and away the most important and most powerful intervention you could do. Especially resistance training in older people. We know that one of the biggest risk factors for older people is their loss of muscle mass. This can happen really quickly, uh, and we know that resistance training, for example, just doing weights, is actually really powerful for older people. 
Uh, when it comes to my own lifestyle, uh, sadly, I'm not as, as healthy. I do um, achieve fasting and cardiovascular exercise largely through being disorganized and not having time to eat lunch and having to run to get to meetings on time. But outside right. of that, doing resistance training is the way to go. Incidental exercise and accidental fasting. This is a real theme that emerges, Lindsay. Whenever we talk to doctors and scientists, it's appalling <laughs> the, the <laughs> care that you take of your health. I, I guess another question is, do diet and exercise make people live longer, definitely, or just live better lives while they are alive? So they definitely live better lives while they are alive. So lower incidences of all these uh, age-related diseases. Now, we can correlate... Um, this diet and exercise to increase lifespan, but you know it's a lot. It's difficult to say this in humans that forcing people, old people, onto a treadmill will make them live longer. Largely because prospective clinical trials for lifespan are, are not that easy to achieve, but definitely we can improve their health span. And another question: the the mouse uh, David Sinclair, the mouse aging researcher, has said that the first person to live to one hundred and fifty has already been born, and that we could one day live to be a thousand. Is that hyperbole in your view? <laughs> I've been around long enough now to know that answering that question is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Very good answer. I guess I, I'm really interested too in some of the texts that are coming through on this, Lindsay. One here, before we talk about living to 150, I'm reminded of the poem, I grabbed a pile of dust and holding it up, foolishly asked for as many birthdays as the grains of dust. I forgot to ask that they be years of youth. There's a uh, Greek myth, I think, that applies to that. But also people being really really worried about what this means on a broader social level. For goodness sake, says Wendy, humans are destroying the planet and here they are trying to extend their lives so that there are more humans continuing on. Aging, says Wendy, is a time of acceptance and to celebrate and appreciate life. The scientists involved are worried about their living longer, never mind the planet. I mean, it does bring up a lot of pressing social questions. Who gets access to this ability to live longer? What it means for uh, services, housing, our relationships? Relationships. Are we keeping up to speed with the ethical and cultural implications of living longer, Lindsay? Yeah, that's a great question. The first uh, point I'd make is that you know the worst thing for society could be if we were uh, if if we had a huge population of older people who are in decrepit health and who required nursing homes. Um, there aren't you know we know that the birth rate is declining almost everywhere around the world. We are going to have a shrinking population. And if we don't have enough young workers looking after old people who are in very poor health, society is going to be in a very bad state. Now, when it comes to access, resistance training and exercise is free. This is something that can be done around the, uh, around the world. And if we can improve um, you know, the, the physical health of those, that older population, I think that you know, society as a whole benefits. That is also a very good answer. Dr. Lindsay Wu, it's been fascinating speaking with you today. Thanks so much for your time. No worries, thank you. Lindsay is a Senior Research Fellow at the Laboratory for Ageing Research at the University of New South Wales. And this is such a big topic, the implications of this and the mechanics of ageing and perhaps not ageing, that we're spending a bit of extra time on it on Life Matters today on ABCRN. Very keen to hear your thoughts on our text line, 0418 226 576. One wag says, it sounds like we may have time to pay off 80-year term home loans after all. New retirement age, 85. Another, I'm nearly 70. I've never been healthier since switching to keto-style eating some years ago. I'm full of energy and have no inflammatory issues. I walk a lot. Life is good, despite 
quite a demanding, caring role. And David says, my spirituality is of foremost importance. It holds out the real, the, the real for everlasting life. And he quotes a, a Bible verse, John 17, 3. I'm not familiar with it. Now, many scientists are interested in longevity, but many physicians too. Dr. Peter Attia trained at Stanford and the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He worked as a cancer surgeon, but he's changed tack now and he works as a physician focused on longevity. He's on the editorial board for the journal Aging. He hosts the podcast The Drive. Very popular. And his first book is out now too. It's called Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity. Dave, uh, sorry, Dr. Peter Atia, welcome to Life Matters. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, you worked really hard for years to be the best cancer surgeon you could be, you write in the book. Why did you stop? Well, I mean, I sort of, uh, I guess, felt uh, that my work was not able to make as much of a difference as I wanted to. I think I just got a little bit frustrated that so many of the problems that I was trying to fight uh, and like all doctors are trying to fight was um, a little bit of too late, you know, in the sense that um, you could do these really heroic surgeries or other heroic medical interventions and you could slightly delay death, but you weren't really uh, materially altering the course of a person's life. And you certainly weren't increasing the quality of their life. So in, in sort of more technical parlance that meant that you could slightly increase lifespan, but not particularly improve health span. And frankly, I just was frustrated and I left medicine altogether. So I, you know, when I, that was about 15 years ago or 16, 17 years ago and um, thought I would never come back to medicine. And it was only later that I did. Yeah, I love the the metaphor that you, or the dream that you relate in the book where you're running around at the bottom of a building trying to catch eggs that are falling, you know, these precious objects that need to not be crushed. And you realized eventually you need to get to the top of the building and take out the guy who's throwing the eggs down in the first place. Is, was that a metaphor for how you began to feel about the way that traditional medicine approaches health and aging in particular? Yeah, exactly. I think that um, nobody's a stranger to the term prevention. I think anybody would agree that prevention makes sense. The problem is, and certainly this is the case in the United States, it, it might be slightly better in Australia, but we, we don't really put that into practice, right? The, the dollars and cents, the research, uh, the treatment strategies, they aren't really in line with that. So I'll give you a very glib example, right? Um, if, if a person wants to become an oncologist, think about the amount of education that they must go through medical school uh, in the United States, six additional years of training post medical school. And that's necessary so that they can provide with great care and specificity, all of the detailed treatments necessary to provide, you know, chemotherapy to patients with cancer. Now, imagine, for example, um, if you wanted that level of precision in terms of how you should exercise to reduce your risk of cancer or heart disease or Alzheimer's disease. Yes, every doctor knows exercise is good, but if you wanted to get the next layer of understanding that you could actually act on with precision, it's simply not there. It, it's as unhelpful as, you know, being told by a cancer doctor that you need chemotherapy, but not being able to offer any more insight, such as how much or when or what biomarkers they would track to know if the cancer is being treated appropriately. So you'd like to see research more targeted to, you know, maybe one day be able to give people uh, individually tailored exercise and diet and lifestyle plans? Well, I think that's part of it, but I also think we actually know quite a lot today. We, we know much more than we're taking advantage of today. And the, the previous uh, uh, guest, I think, made this point very well for me, which is that 
there's simply nothing that compares to having high degree of cardiorespiratory fitness as measured by VO2 max, having a high degree of muscle mass. So being at about the top 25% of the population for your age and sex and having high strength. And if you have those three things working in your favor, the benefit that they provide is more than twice the magnitude of the harm brought on by smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, or any other number of things that people readily understand are going to shorten their life and reduce the quality of life. We're talking with Dr. Peter Atia, who is a physician who works and has, has been uh, researching and writing about the field of longevity, how we can take into our control the things that are within our control to add a few more years to our lifespan. One says, having had 80 excellent years, I'm more than happy to move over for my younger progeny. And that's a bit of a theme emerging in our discussion, I have to say, Peter, today that people are worried about the broader social implications of people living longer. But I mean, I'm getting the impression from your book that you're not so much about pinning a number like 150, 200, 1,000 on our lifespan, but in making our our health spans better. Yeah, I I think a lot of that talk of living to 150, um, I mean, quite frankly, I just think it's sort of nonsense. And I think it's a bit of a distraction from what we can do here and now. Um, You know, even if one believes that that's the case, and I, and I don't, by the way, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in this literature and I don't believe that that's the case. But but even if you did believe that that's the case, why wouldn't you at least hedge by taking actions today to do all that you can to improve the length and quality of your life? And uh, you're absolutely correct. What we're really talking about here is making sure that the last decade of your life is exceptional because the default for this last decade of your life, which I call the marginal decade, is generally one in which your cognitive and physical capacity are less than half what they were, you know, in midlife. And I think that's what most people are afraid of. When I talk to people and I talk to my patients about this constantly, they're most afraid of the deterioration in the quality of life in the last decade. They're not particularly concerned as to whether they live to 85 or 90. That almost never crosses a person's mind. They want to know that they can pick up their grandkids from the crib They want to know that they can still go for a walk. And if the terrain is a little bit rugged, they're not automatically going to fall down. They want to know that if an escalator is broken, they can still walk up with a piece of luggage. I mean, these are the things that matter to people. And these things they have to be trained for. They have to be prepared for. There was a fascinating section in your book, Peter, where you relate this incident where you'd just done a massively long ocean swim. You're in your 30s. You're thinking of yourself as pretty athletic. And your wife turns to you and says, Peter... We've got to do something about your health. How do you, how well did you take all this information, this publicly available information about health and, and long life on board uh, when it came to your own health at the time? Well, I mean, I think up until that point, I was very one dimensional in my pursuit of health in that I had been a lifelong athlete and had been always an extreme athlete. So that what you're referring to is I had just done like a, you know, a 40 kilometer swim and Um, but you know, I wasn't paying attention to any other aspect of my health, uh, including particularly what I was eating. Um, and that event, that swim actually coincided very closely with the birth of my first child about, uh, 15 years ago. And that was really the wake up call because that's what kind of shifted my mindset towards, you know, it's really not about how well I perform today. It's about how well I perform over the duration of my life. And in particular, what I'll be able to do near the end of my life to enjoy the relationships of the people who are going to matter most, which will be 
you know, my wife, my kids, my grandkids, and maybe if I'm really lucky, my great grandkids. So you started looking into gerontology and reading up on this field, Peter. Let's find out a bit of the, the, the things that you took from that. Let's focus on diet for a moment. You argue that being overnourished can lead to a greater risk of metabolic disease and shortened life. What kind of nutrients do you think we should focus more on and what should we have less of? Well, I mean, I think the most important thing to be thinking about is probably protein consumption, um, especially if we're, you know, thinking about this through the lens of an aging population. Um, as people get older, they experience something called anabolic resistance, which means it becomes harder and harder for their muscles to undergo what's called muscle protein synthesis, which is the process of repairing using amino acids, which are the building blocks of muscle that come from protein to preserve muscle mass. So, one of the biggest things we certainly see here in the US, but I suspect that this is true across the world, is that people are not getting sufficient amounts of protein to preserve lean mass. And the consequences of this are actually devastating. Um, there's a condition known as sarcopenia, which is just a technical way of saying when you don't have sufficient muscle mass. And when you look at the consequences of this in a population, especially once you reach the age of 65, most people would be startled to know this, but if a person over the age of 65 falls, and again, lack of balance, lack of muscle mass, uh, frailty are all big risk factors, and breaks their hip, the mortality, meaning the probability that they will be dead in the next 12 months, is anywhere from 10 to 30%, depending on the study. So, you know, if a 25-year-old falls and breaks their hip, it really isn't the end of the world. But if someone over the age of 65 does, it can be life-altering, even if they don't die. They may never recover from that injury. So um, that would be probably the single most important piece of input I would, I would, you know, prescribe from a nutritional standpoint is ensuring adequate protein intake. Now, you commented earlier about being overnourished. And unfortunately, we do live in a world where many people are overnourished. And unfortunately, the only real treatment for that is to reduce total intake. Uh, this is, you know, we have genes that evolved very well for an, a period of time when nutrients were scarce, but for the last, you know, hundred years or so, that has not been the case and our genes haven't really caught up. So unfortunately for many of us, avoiding this uh, condition of being overnourished uh, does require attention. You also share with Dr. Lindsay Wu the belief that exercise is the most potent longevity drug. How much do we need to do? What kind of intensity? I mean, as you write so often in your book, Dr. Peter Atiyah, it's it's going to need to be tailored to the person. Can we generalize about exercise? You know, I tend to do it more through the lens of tell me what you're doing now and I'll tell you what might be the next best step. So let's let's start at the most extreme case. If you take an individual who is doing nothing, um, we know pretty clearly that getting them up to three hours a week, say six 30 minute bouts of exercise a week will reduce their all cause mortality, meaning their death from any cause by 50 percent. What that means in practical terms is at any point in time, they will have a 50% reduction in death in the coming year relative to what they would have otherwise. And again, we, don't, we simply don't have other interventions that come close to that. So just going from not exercising to three hours a week, which I don't think is a very big ask for most people, um, has a greater net benefit on your life than any drug, any molecule, and anything we can think of. Now, of course, if you take a person who's exercising three hours a week and you take them to six hours a week, you won't get quite the same bang for your buck, but you will see a continued increase and improvement in outcomes. In fact, 
Um, there appears to be no upper bound to the benefit of fitness when it comes to lifespan and health span. It's really interesting, Peter. We're getting lots of texts with people concerned about the amount of money that's being spent on uh, scientific exploration of uh, genetic and epigenetic uh, ways of dealing with ageing. Would you like to see more research put into these things that are, as you say, freely available, exercise, adjustments to diet, uh, improving our sleep and things like that and the effect that they can have on our lifespan? Well, of course I would, but you know, it is very difficult to study the simple things in the sense that, um, you know, I think, I think what you'll see is there, there's a, there, there tends to be more of an attraction to study things where there's a, an ability to make money and it's very difficult to make money, you know, on exercise or on nutrition in the same way that you could make exercise, you know, make money off, you know, for example, a drug that alters, you know, an epigenome or a cocktail or intervention that's going to, you know, alter, you know, other parameters of aging. So, um, you know, my view as someone who's not really going to be responsible for how funds are allocated is at the individual level, I don't concern myself with those things. I concern myself and my patients concern themselves with what we know today and what we can do about it. And as I said, the good news is we don't really need any more evidence to tell us how cardio respiratory training, how VO2 max training, how strength training are going to impact the length and quality of our life. We are getting texts asking about the specifics of exercise. Uh, I know that you write that any exercise is good exercise, but how intense does it need to be to get the most impact? What someone says, can it just be a brisk brisk walk in 30 minutes? Uh, That's a great question. So it's really going to, again, depend on a person's level of fitness. So the way I like to explain it to people, we we talk about um, aerobic efficiency as being the foundation of your cardiorespiratory training. So if you want to broadly divide training into strength training and cardio training, let's talk about the cardio first. What you want to do is make sure that about 80% of the total volume of cardio training you are doing is at a level that's called zone two, which just means a level that is a bit too difficult for you to carry out a conversation easily, but not so difficult that you can't speak at all. Now, for some people, that might be a brisk walk. It might be that a brisk walk puts them in the state where, you know, they could talk if they had to, but they don't really want to. Now, if they, if, you know, if you're, if, if it's so difficult that you can't speak, that's too strenuous. So again, we want 80% of our cardio volume to be there. And then 20% of it, we want to be at a higher level where you cannot carry out a conversation where you can't speak. And that can be done in shorter bursts. For example, you might do four minutes at that intensity and then rest for four minutes. And then you repeat that a number of times. And that's the type of workout you only need to do once a week. You might only need to spend 30 minutes doing that type of workout and say two times or three times 30 minutes of the other kind. And then conversely, on the strength training side, we really want to focus on the biggest muscles in the body. And, you know, we, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about what those exercises should look like. What would a program of what we call hip hinging, eccentric strength training, training grip strength, you know, how do you put all of those things into place? Um, But again, you don't need to exercise as much as I do, for example. I mean, I probably spend 12 to 14 hours a week exercising. That's, um, you know, maybe a bit uh, unnecessary for for someone, especially if they're starting from a from a low baseline.
Yeah, and as we've been hearing from people's schedules, some of them sound a bit aspirational, the idea of being able to squeeze 12 to 14 hours of exercise in is a bit of a pipe dream for a lot of us. Peter, I was really intrigued by uh, one section of your book where you argue that uh, the importance of emotional health is a, a major element that's missing from traditional medicine. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to realise that that was a really important thing for you to include uh, in your overall health and how it relates to living longer? Well, you know, you sort of uh, alluded to it indirectly earlier. Uh, you almost, uh, you know, gave the the, the example of uh, Tithonus, the Greek god, who sort of, you know, wanted uh, immortality but forgot to ask for health span with it, right? So, w- what I think is clear there is the thought experiment, which says, "Look, what good is living longer if the quality of that life is compromised?" And I would argue that the quality of a person's life is really a function of three things. One of them is their cognitive uh, capacity. Uh, One of them is their physical capacity. We've talked a lot about that, but one of them is their emotional capacity. And it's that last one that I think gets some of the least attention because it's the least age dependent. You know, everybody kind of understands that as you get older, your cognition declines, your strength declines, your stamina declines, your pain increases. But emotional health is something where you can be suffering at any age. And I think the other good thing about emotional health, if we're going to look at this from a positive standpoint is at any age, you can improve it. You know, you know, my emotional health today at 50 is much better than it was at 40. And I suspect that when I'm 60 and 70, it's going to be even better than it is today. So part of this is just acknowledging that that's potentially the most important part of this all, because if that part is out of whack, I don't think any of this other stuff matters. There is no reason that I can understand why you would want to live longer in any state of health, good or otherwise, if you're unhappy. And if your relationships with other people are compromised, if your relationship with yourself is compromised, it just doesn't seem like it's a life worth living. Yes, indeed. And if we can help people achieve a more satisfying life on all those different levels that you mentioned, that will be a worthy goal indeed. Dr. Peter Atiyah, thank you so much for joining us on Life Matters today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Peter's a physician. His book is called Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity. And earlier you heard too from Dr. Lindsay Wu, Senior Research Fellow at the Laboratory for Aging Research at the University of New South Wales. A couple of representative texts to leave you with at the end of this discussion. No need to worry about the world being overrun by 150-year-old people. Only a select few will get it. There's a strong equity theme emerging from our text line. And Judy in Castlemaine says, so much commentary is self-focused. Friends, family, community, there's a lot of good eating, good exercise, good laughing to be gained when you extend the focus. That sounds like a good life to me. You're listening to Life Matters, a life in review up next and the beautiful perspective that comes from sharing it with loved family members on ABCRN. ABC Listen. So uh, what's the craziest question you've ever been asked on the Dr. Carl podcast? Well, Triple J listeners are pretty imaginative, so we've been asked questions like, why do men have nipples? And what happens if you shoot a gun in space? And how do trees talk to each other? The answer, of course, is the wood wide web. Mm, Carl. Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy have all the answers on the Dr. Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. Special birthdays can be a time to celebrate, but also a chance to reflect on the events of your life so far. And you might have to get used to being the centre of attention for a moment, like Kathy Williams did. She tells a story here about a very precious object that was presented to her on one of these special occasions for Life in 500 Words. 
I'm not a great one for parties, but for my 70th birthday, I decided to have a celebration come get together of family and close friends. This took place at lunchtime at a centre in a national park with bush all around us. It was very casual, the weather was perfect, and I loved having those closest to me all together. Just to add to the enchantment of the day, two of our grandnieces wandered around hand in hand looking for fairies amongst the bushes and rocks. After having drinks and eats, there were speeches, and then one of our nieces presented me with a gift which was obviously a book. I had a quick inspection, but in all honesty, did not take in much because I was a little embarrassed at that time at being the centre of attention. I think my niece was rightly somewhat disappointed at my response. After the party, we continued on to my brother and sister-in-law's unit at Coogee, where many family members were gathered. And it was while we were en route to Coogee that I really looked at the book and the tears came. This was the response my niece had hoped for and was thrilled to hear about when we reached Coogee. I now know about the huge amount of work undertaken preparing this beautiful book. My niece contacted many of my friends and family members in Australia and overseas and asked for photos and any memory they would like to have written up in the book. My non-technologically inclined husband had to supply email addresses, which he did by copying out the addresses by hand and then sending them by snail mail. Yes, really. Furtive phone calls were made at opportune moments. When all the photos and extracts were gathered together, they were sent to another niece who organised the actual book. It was an amazing effort. So this book is my most precious object for a few reasons. I find it a little overwhelming and quite wonderful to think that my niece undertook the huge task of producing this fantastic book at a time when she was a single working mum of two young children. The book is beautiful, with photos of my childhood, travel overseas before and after marriage, caravan trips around Australia, weddings, family get-togethers and times with friends. There are accompanying extracts which remind me of events in my life I had forgotten about. Some of those people have since died, and without the book I would have been unaware of their memories of the relationship we had had. Needless to say, this precious book of mine is kept in a safe place, but I look at it a few times each year and always find something that makes me laugh, cry, or just relish my life and the people in it. I see it as the gift that keeps on giving, and I try to tell my niece this frequently. And incidentally, those littlies searching for fairies are now teenagers and creating their own life stories and memories. Kathy Williams. That story was produced by Michelle Weeks with sound engineering by Carrie Dell, who adds some audio magic to many of our Life in 500 Words stories. If you'd like to be part of that, tell us in 500 words or so about your precious object and send it to us. All the instructions are on our website. Now, if you're a parent of young children, would you like to utter the magic words holiday sorted? We will enlist parent and author Jimmy Reese to see if we can make it so in a moment. 
Do you find if you're a parent of school-aged kids that the time leading up to school holidays, let alone the alleged holidays themselves, is not all that relaxing? There can be a lot of pressure to find activities to keep the kids busy and happy. I would love to hear your plans. How are you balancing the parents' and the kids' needs and schedules and practicalities? What's on your agenda these holidays? Jimmy Reese has thought about this a fair bit as a father of three. He was the giggle in Giggle and Hoot on ABC TV, and he pivoted to very funny videos during lockdowns in Melbourne. Now he writes children's books too. His new one is called Holiday Sorted, illustrated by Bryony Stewart. Jimmy, great to have you on the program. G'day, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Two four-year-olds and a seven-year-old. What was your last (laughs) holiday like? Oh man! Uh, look, we've uh, last year we went um, on a plane somewhere, Ooh. which was crazy because we, you know, every single piece of luggage I think went in the oversized luggage with prams and all sorts of things. Um, but we do have a caravan actually, and recently we've been doing that because. Uh, they actually all sleep in there now because previous experiences from a couple of years ago when the twins were really young, yeah, we we, we just sort of parked it for a while. But, yeah, <laughs> more recently, we've actually had some great little trips in our caravan with the triple bunks. They Aww. all sleep in there perfectly, even better than they do at home. So we've been doing that a lot lately, which has been great. Yeah, good. A lot of the school parents I know would say the word holidays with little air quotes around it. <laughs> It really changes the way you think about it. Now, this book is part of a series of books that you've put out, uh, Bedtime Sorted, Dinner Mm -hmm. Sorted, and the premise is that we're welcomed into a common parenting situation and the dad thinks he's got it all in hand. Spoiler, he does not. Why did you think that that would be a setup that would work well for a book series? Um, well, it's a documentary, actually, in my <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's um, yeah, it's just sort of one of those things. I've been making these videos. It actually came about from the videos I've been making um, online and, and uh, sort of started them just before uh, as COVID hit and everything. And I think a lot of uh, the, the first uh, videos I sort of put out was something that was just relatable to me, which was parenting. So um, a few of these books are sort of inspired by just the – well, moments in anyone's life, but um, a couple of the videos that uh, I, pu- I put out of the excuses at bedtime and dinner time and all the little nuanced little things that parents will absolutely know. Um, and, yeah, so we, we turned them into a book and, uh, yeah, we had this uh, this idea that, you know, um, that I, you know, like the character who's the dad is just sort of like, yeah, yeah, that's all good, it's all good. And I feel like I say that to my wife all the time. Everything all good? Yeah, it's fine, it's fine, until it's not fine. And then it's like this bubbling up of the uh, everything, everything, I think everything's going great <laughs> until you take a look back and it's completely bananas. So, um, yeah, so uh, bed t- um, bedtime sort of was first because yeah, my, my eldest son, who's almost eight, he... Uh, yeah, he's come up with some great ones over the years, and and all of them are just in the book, you know. Like, uh, and when you say something, you know, you say, "Oh no, no, we have to go to bed, or put socks on, or something, or whatever it is." Then they go, "Ah, oh, no, I don't want the socks on now." So therefore, I can't sleep now. So then they use the things against you. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they've got amazing <laughs> memories, children. I love how in this book, the parents are trying to get the kids into the car for a holiday. They keep being delayed. Oh, I forgot to feed my pet rock. Someone needs yeah. to go to the toilet. More snacks. <laughs> but a, a great aspect of this one is that the mum and dad are equally incompetent and overwhelmed and that is quite a contrast to some of the representations of dads in other kids books as you know they're a bit daffy they're not good at household tasks and parenting was that a conscious decision to avoid that kind of stereotyping yeah for sure yeah absolutely look my wife and i are pretty hands-on both of us and we both share the load and um and i uh, i've always been uh you know i i love to cook so i'm the chef most nights and um 
and yeah, and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a reflection on um, on yeah our family, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of um, families are like that too. So yeah, it was just to, and, and yeah, look, I, I would say that you're you're right. The stereotype is that kind of mum might have it all together, and she's like the organizer and got all that, and that does happen in our house. But also, we, we both share the load. But yeah, no, we just went um, with dad's sort of the one who's trying to keep it all together. But then yeah, mum has her troubles too and can't do it either. So. There's a little quip at the end of each book, which is, uh, all right, at the first one it was like, dinner time's over, all right, but you can put them to bed now. So, ha-ha, I'll have, <laughs> I did the dinner, you do the bed. And then it's the reverse in the um, in the bedtime, uh, you know, all right, you do the you do the dinner or whatever now. And then um, and then the, uh, and the holidays, yeah, we palm them off to the grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like a documentary. I don't think so. It's a fantasy at the end of this one. The kids walk away, the parents walk away. But yeah, yeah. I wonder too, Jimmy, if your, all your years of entertaining kids on TV has helped with your parenting at all. Was there any skills you could transfer? Yeah, for sure. I think it's just seeing the um, that wonder in kids' eyes. You know, from from doing Giggle and Hoot, it was it was always about the one kid on, on the other end of the camera. You know, that's that's who we were performing for. That's what the whole show was about. You can't imagine. You know, you might get the ratings. There might be half a million kids watching it for the for the day or the week or whatever. But you can't imagine that because there is only one or two kids maybe at the other end of the of the camera watching on their TV. So it's, it's, um, I mean, there's some advice we got from play school as well over the time. We used to shoot in the studio next to us. It was, yeah, it's really that, that one audience member on the other side. And, and then when I went out and met people eventually after a couple of years or a year of doing the show, we went out and did some meet and greets and, and met some audiences. And we ended up doing a tour over the years as well and, and meeting plenty of the audience. Um, yeah, it's, it's just that kind of wonder in their eyes. Everything's new, everything's fun and exciting. And yeah, I, I, um, I was, I kind of had a few cousins and stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, nieces and nephews prior to me having kids as well. And, and, um, and yeah, you sort of, you know, when you're the first, um, the first is born in your family and stuff like that, you're, uh, you're always, you get, get your little taste of what it's like having a little kid. And, uh, yeah, so when I started having my own, all those experiences and just being happy and joyful and seeing the smiles on kids' faces when you're in 100% invested was, uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, help my parenting for sure. Yes, indeed. Well, and Jimmy makes videos about his parenting experiences, among other things. I mean, there's there's videos for the parents and there's videos for, for the whole family. Some of them have been viewed over 40 million times. I want to play a little bit of one. Here's a snippet from a day where Jimmy Reese just said yes to everything his five-year-old asked for. I 100% would have said no about 50 times already. Can I play Rocket League? I would have said nope. And then can I have some more smoothie? Nope. Can I play another game? Nope. Surprising how often you actually say no. Come get the Power Ranger watch thing. At Target! At Target, okay. You know what, it's actually quite sweet. He's He's got an idea of what he wants to do today and, and we're just rolling with it. Alright, let's go. Woohoo, it's going to be so fun, woohoo! It did look fun, but by the end of the day, your wife didn't even want to talk about it. How did that day finish up for you? Oh, yeah. It was actually uh, – he was so excited about it. <laughs> and I expected him being five, you know, I was like, oh, he could take me for a ride here and just ask for anything. But he was he was kind of measured in his response. I, I don't think he actually knew what to ask for, you know. Um, I did try it again a few years later and he was like, yeah, lollies, this, that. I'm like, okay, I think that's a, <laughs> that sweet naive time's gone. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really great. Yeah. He, um, he had a, he had an idea of what he wanted to do, um, do a bit of retail therapy, 
Uh, we went for a hot chocolate. Uh, we went to a little um, farm that was uh, like a little play farm kind of thing and saw the animals and, yeah, it was great. It was sweet. It was really, it was really nice. Yeah. yeah, like little basic pleasures. Well, it's yeah. interesting too because it's such a contrast to the way a lot of us were raised in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very kind of 2020s video, that one, or, or thing to do to have a yes day. Do you think we mm. expect too much of ourselves these days? This, you know, the idea that we have to kind of fulfil our kids' physical and mental and emotional and creative sides rather than just keeping them basically fed and clothed? Yeah, well, I think the, a mix of both is actually, um, yeah, is probably probably the right way to go because, yeah, sometimes you can kind of overparent, can't you, and you become <laughs> this helicopter parent who is in, involved in everything and, and that's probably not great for them as well because they need to, you know, learn the independence and that's our job really is as parents, but I guess well, I've got young kids, so I feel like you have to be there a lot for them anyway, but I'm assuming as you get older and um, and sort of what I've heard from yeah, from, from our friends who have older, older kids is that, you know, you really want them to be more independent and that you want them just, just come and ask you if they need help rather than being there for every single, um, you know, fall or whatever it is or every single moment of their life. So I guess you, you start to dial those things back over the over the years. Um, but, yeah, I, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they could just be like, go outside and play and just be fine. That's it. You can find something to do. I don't have to be there doing everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, and on the theme of dialing down, someone's texted in, holidays, grandparents do amazing holiday outings, train trips, pencil and paper drawings in the art gallery or the public library from books, bushwalks, making music, gardening, stories, preparing meals and snacks in advance, wonderful chance for quality time. I mean, you seem like a pretty busy guy, Jimmy Reese. You, you were treating making videos as a job during lockdown down and you mm-hmm. got shows booked and books to write and things. Do you manage to get that downtime with the kids and, and have that just hanging out, being bored together time? Yeah, I'm, well, I try and make sure that I do that. You know, um, like you mentioned, yeah, I, I didn't really have anything to do through COVID um, being an entertainer and uh, giggle and hooted wrapped by that uh, by 2020. So I had nothing to do. And I knew that there was a, a, you know, I could make a living online and, and post these videos and, and stuff like that. And if I worked hard, that it would um, it would turn into a job and other opportunities would come from it. I sort of had a bit of that foresight. Um, so I turned it into a full-time job. But, yeah, I kind of just manage my hours. I, I think it's nice to um, to be in that position. I've, I've sort of worked hard over the few years and they were tough, you know, being locked down inside, especially in Victoria with uh, three really young kids um, and trying to make silly videos in, like, the any room that I could find in the house was quite a difficult to <laughs> get a bit of peace and quiet. Um, but yeah, I, I look, I try and pick the kids up, you know, a few times a week and stuff from, from, and I drop them off at school and, uh, but we also just have those weekends and, and afternoons where, yeah, I, I'm not working till 7pm or anything, you know, <laughs> just sort of get home early and while it's still light, we jump in the pool and, um, and have, and have a good time. So yeah, I, I think I've got that mix of work life kind of balance. Um, they're pretty good, you know, being in entertainment, though, as well, things just come out of nowhere. Like on TV at the moment is um, Taskmaster. We shot a, a series of Taskmaster. And that was, I think, just the way it was um, was commissioned or whatever or greenlit at the end, it was a bit of a, a last minute. Well, it felt like last minute for me anyway. But they just called up, said, do you want to be part of this show? It's in two weeks. You've got to go to New Zealand for a week and a half. <laughs> and it was just one of those things where you had to just dive in and that happens a lot in, you know, in, in kind of what I do or and it's like, oh, these live shows are here or this event's here. Can you just kind of drop it and go sometimes? So it's uh, those moments are hard because I do find it really hard to, to go away from the, from the kids for, 
you know, even if it is a week or two weeks or something. But, um, but yeah, we just try to manage them as they come. Well, yeah, I was reading how you, uh, instead of, you know, squishing a tour into three months, you kind of, you know, salt and peppered it over eight months so that you could have those times at home with the kids. And I'm sure your kids, we hopefully appreciate that when they're about 35 and (laughs) stop seeing life through the kid lens. Look, it's been great chatting to you today, Jimmy. All the best with the future. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. We'll chat soon. Thanks, Jimmy Rees, comedian, children's book author. His latest book is called Holiday Sorted. And what a skill it is to, you know, write and make videos for kids, family kind of videos, and also make very, very funny ones that tap into the experience of uh, very unpleasant things happening during lockdown and, and lighten things a bit. They were a real mood lightener for a lot of people who were going through that in Melbourne in particular, but around the country. They made fun of everyone in an equal opportunity way. You're listening to Life Matters on ABCRN. So many people keen to share their thoughts about ageing and living longer. One says people expect medicine to continue to deliver longer and longer lives, but they're not willing to adjust retirement ages. Just look at France, where they're rioting in the streets with the modest upward adjustment from 62 to 64. How will societies afford all these treatments for old people when we can't even pay the working poor a living wage? Ron chimes in on text, ageing is a privilege, not a predicament. Another says, I'm 65, I'm seeing an exercise physiologist. He's teaching me weight training, balance, cardio, etc. I can afford this, but many can't, most can't, they say. Government should be giving more subsidies. I can only get five Medicare subsidised visits per year. It's not enough. And, and I guess as you point out that uh, it's a subsidy, it's not paying for those visits. Extended ageing, says another, is only for the well-off. I'm more interested in equity in ageing. How about helping the ageing disadvantaged population first? And we had a text before from John uh, sending through a Bible verse, John 17.3. He sent the full text of that verse now. This means everlasting life. They're coming to know you, the only true God and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. And they go on, an accurate knowledge of truth regarding why we die reveals the original purpose for humans. And that's as in line with the text they sent earlier saying that their spirituality is a very important part of their life. Uh, one perspective on this whole longevity discussion. Just finally, a 200-year-old Rupert Murdoch or Donald Trump? What a horror movie. <laughs> Remember, Rupert has already had several monkey gland treatments to extend his life. I could not comment on the veracity of that, but thanks for the text. There are a lot of emotions that come with being a parent. Pride, adoration, confusion, anxiety, joy... But is guilt a big one for you too? Sometimes we can feel guilty for letting kids be on screens while we work or cook dinner or for snapping at them when we're tired or failing them in a multitude of other ways. Does guilt help make us a better parent in some way or can it bog us down and make us feel like a failure? Beverly Wang will ask those questions on Life Matters next time. I hope you'll come along for the ride. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.